On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. The town may be kind of small, but these folks have big smiles and big hearts. And they know what it is to have simple fun down our way. For old-fashioned singing and homey gatherings make living mighty pleasant. I'm the guy in the glasses. There you go. Waving, waving at you. Now I can hear you, and now I see you. Okay, Rob, give it a go. And and this is me. I'm Rob. I am in the the non-glasses and the non-pink shirt. It's salmon, guys. Let's go with salmon, please. Salmon. Salmon-colored shirt. <laughs> okay, now I can hear Welcome to Abandoned Albums, the documentary podcast where we take a closer look at some albums that may have been forgotten about over time, and some albums you might not even know existed. I'm your host, Keith R. Higgins, and joining me, as always, is Rob Janicki. Hey, Rob. Hey, Keith. How are you? I am doing okay, Rob. I am doing okay. I got to tell you, though, it is it is hotter than H-E double hockey sticks. On this episode of Abandoned Albums, we talk with Gary Myrick, singer-songwriter and Texas guitar slinger. Gary's career has included a chance encounter with Jimi Hendrix, replacing Stevie Ray Vaughan in the band Cracker Jack, recording a number one hit song known around the world, and playing with founding members of both The Clash and The Sex Pistols, in addition to his own solo work. Rob and I got the chance to talk with Gary about how the band Havana 3AM came to be and their brilliant 1990 self-titled debut album. So here's our conversation with Gary Myrick about Havana 3AM and a whole lot of other things, including what he's up to today. Well, welcome, Gary. Thank you. My apologies for the technical glitches, and I sincerely appreciate your patience. Thank you. Oh, it's no problem, brother. No, no worries at all. Cool. Cool. I don't even know where to begin. I, I guess I think you've got an amazing career. Don't say that. No, no. <laughs> have have an amazing career. I apologize. Have an amazing career. And yeah, just no, looking it's through. Still going. It's and, uh, done. It absolutely is. Very far from done. I appreciate that. You know, I've been very lucky to do and played with so many different people and done my own. You know, I, I now have like over 10 albums out of my own and then, you know, have been lucky enough to play with other really great people. I'm grateful. What's interesting, what really made my jaw drop initially, replacing Stevie Ray Vaughan. And that's that's pretty fucking intense. Well, you know, you know what the best thing about that is? It looks incredible on the resume. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best thing about it. I mean, I knew Stevie. Stevie was playing in a band in Austin in 1972 called Cracker Jack. And they had two guitarists. Another one was named uh, Robin Seiler, who is also passed. Um, 
and uh, Uncle John Turner was the drummer. And Uncle John was the original drummer for the Johnny Winter Trio. Wow. And Tommy Shannon, who later on was in Double Trouble, bass player, was playing bass in Cracker Jack. So I had my own band in Dallas, and I was playing a place called The Cellar, which was a wild joint, downtown Dallas. Mm -hmm. Every bouncer had a gun on. Wow. Good God. <laughs> in fact, a bullet flew over my head one night, for real. It, they were shooting at me. They I was going to ask, yeah. Some guy hit his gun on a table, like, <laughs> you know, like like a dumbass, and it went pew, and I went, "Hey, can you can you not do that?" <laughs> I'm I'm trying to live here, play some songs. What what the hell? It was a wild joint. I'm doing all my own material, which was you know not not many people were doing in Texas at that time. Nobody was doing their own stuff. I mean, some people were, but 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 not many. So Uncle John came in that club, and uh, I'd met him a long time ago before that, and I'd been down to Austin with another band of mine earlier. earlier. So Uncle John said, hey, we need a guitar player. Would you like to come down to Austin and join Cracker Jack? And see, now Cracker Jack had a really great reputation, and because they were doing their own thing, it was like blues rock, and they were the biggest band in Austin. So I thought, well, this this will be, a, you know, this will be great fun. I said, yeah. You know, Stevie hadn't made any records or any, you know, none of us had made any records except for Uncle John and Tommy were on the, the Johnny Winter stuff. Okay. And so I thought it would be a really good thing for me to also, you know, really do some blues rock and, you know, also make some good money because they were making really good money yeah. for the times we were making like a thousand dollars a night, which was at in 72 with no records out. That was fantastic, you know, money, and yeah. that went a long way because you could rent a house for like, you know, $200 in, in Austin, <sighs> you know, back yeah. in the day. And it was a hippie town. It was really, a, and it was just music had a great blues scene. It also was just a, you know, it's a lot smaller. It's not, it's not anything like that now. I mean, you know, it's it's still, you know, a liberal-minded town, but, you know, they don't pay their musicians anymore. I mean, locally, they. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's bad. It's bad for, the like, the new guys that are trying to do something. They don't get treated right, and it's not, it's not cool. No. But nevertheless, I went down there. I replaced Stevie. I don't know why. I, maybe he was drunk. I don't know. I don't know what was going on. And then we met again later on and played some song after I was on Epic Records mm -hmm. and he was on Epic Records. Mm -hmm. And we played some shows in the Midwest and, you know, had some talks. And he was, he was a very sweet guy, very, yeah. very nice guy, you know, a gentle soul. And of course, a great guitar player, we all know. And, and uh, so that was it. That was it. That's how I replaced Stevie Ray Vaughan. Our first interview, do you know who Jimmy Ashurst is? He's a bass player. He was in a band called Broken Homes. He played with, then went on to play with Izzy Stradlin, Buck Cherry, in any event. 
Do you know who Don Harvey is, the drummer? No. He's from Austin, and uh, Jimmy was always concerned about his bass playing. He thought he sucked or whatever, and he was always afraid that he was going to get fired. So they're recording their first record, and they bring in Don Harvey, who's from Austin. The quote Jimmy said on, on the interview, in the interview was, uh, he's like, I'm in there with a bunch of musicians, and they bring in a drummer from Austin, and these guys from Texas can play. You know what? We don't have anything to do but practice. So we, we better learn our shit or forget it. Yeah. Hit the road. If you, you know, you got to learn your stuff. And I'm, t- I'm telling young musicians that I said, dude, you gotta be, you gotta be practicing. You gotta listen to everything and you gotta practice every day of your life for the rest of your life. That's the deal. Also, there's a, you know, there's a, a great history in Texas. So we're all, you know, we, we have we have to live up to it or, you know, it's not going to work out. So fast forward a few years after replacing Stevie Raymond and Cracker Jack, and you end up in the studio with John Waite, former frontman for the Babies. Yeah. And you're working on his album, No Breaks, which, of course, contains the massive hit single, Missing You. Well, everybody knows that song. And, yeah. you know, it, we, we had a number one. We didn't know. We had no idea. I wrote four songs on the album, and then I, I put the whole thing together with john and i both put the whole thing together i had a drummer curly smith who uh was also from austin originally (laughs) and he he played all the drums on it great drummer and uh he's still out there playing and then donnie nasoff was a bass player that john had worked with a lot it was a very sweet guy good guy and uh so we just went into rehearsals. We would write some in rehearsals separately together. And then we did Missing You in the, as we were recording the album. And then I had a solo album to do on Geffen. And, you know, we really always wanted to go out and tour together. And it's a shame we didn't because uh, a lot of, People really, you know, liked the guitar on that record. I should, you know, gone out and played it. But it didn't work out that way. You know, to this day, when you say missing you, you know, to have a number one song in your career any anytime is is really, you know, fantastic. I was a teenager in the mid-80s, and I remember that song really, really well. But I was more into underground rock, alternative punk rock, things like that. So... Me too, but I could do, you know, I could, I could do Missing You too. I mean, oh sure, you know, and I, I mean, I even played with Jackson Brown too. You know, I mean, I could play with, I whatever the artist was part of, I could yeah. probably adapt to it. Even though I was more into the more underground and wilder music, you have this this history, and leading up to someone like me when I discovered you, it was through Havana Three AM. Walk through the city, 
shadows on my mind Daydreams of coming home Are long left behind had all this punk influence kind of rockabilly stuff which was amazing and it was so different at the time and when i remember finding that record and being a fan of the clash knowing that paul was on the record like i think that's probably what got it into the mainstream it is and then when people heard it they were like holy shit this this is a great album does that record hold a place for you that's um it was a great time i i met uh, paul and nigel the singer Nigel was in a band called Whirlwind in England, and they opened for The Clash, like, many gigs, meant, like, on tour. And they were a full-on rockabilly band. Uh, Nigel was the lead singer of that band, and they, had, they have quite a few records. You might want to do a little research on Whirlwind. You might dig it. I will. So he's, re- he's still well-known in the rockabilly scene in England, but he passed away in Havana 3 a.m. from cancer, which devastated us you know and he was the sweetest guy you'd ever meet motorcycle and scooter on the fashion scene black leather favored by mike the motorcyclist for protection at speed fitted beige jacket in corduroy favored by richard for scooter riding get into the right gear always wear a safety helmet we were all into motorcycles we that's kind of how we met i was playing some guitar backing up Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols. Sure. Steve had a solo album out. Mercy was the name of the album. And he had played all the guitar on the album and he needed to go out on tour. Uh, I had met Steve and had said, if you know, if you ever needed any, any, you know, guitar to back you up or whatever, just holler. And, uh, he also was into motorcycles. So, and I'd been riding for, you know, years before that. Paul and Nigel ride into town from El Paso, Texas. And I'm hanging out with Steve Jones to do this tour. And I meet Nigel and Paul and we all go riding. We all had Harleys. And so we went out riding, not really talking about music, you know, just hanging, really. Mm-hmm. Somehow we started talking about music one day uh, and we said, I said, well, 
maybe we should try to write some songs. And if they're, if we think they're any good, let's cut a little demo or something. And, you know, if they're not, okay, that's cool. Nobody, no hard feelings because they wanted to start a band and I wanted to play with them because I liked them. And I, I also get, you know, got along great with English people. I, I don't know why because <laughs> they have a thing about Texans. They, they like Texans. You know, they imagine we're all in cowboy hats and got six. <laughs> Old school Americana. Yeah, yeah. And they were really into, you know, you know Paul's into mm-hmm. spaghetti Western and surf guitar, which I, you know, play. And, uh, you know, I like that stuff, too. And I could do that. And so we kind of had a concept of rockabilly, punk, spaghetti Western and uh latin overtones yeah absolutely havana that's where havana came mm-hmm. you know and havana 3am is actually a perez prado who is a, a havana artist that was the name of one of his albums so we stole that name <laughs> i didn't know that i was gonna ask which i still think to this day that's a great name yeah they, they asked me to come to london so i go to london we rehearsed they had a drummer over there i wished we had our uh American drummer, because I had a great drummer. His name was Steve Klong. He was an incredible drummer. And then he passed away from cancer also. Oh, wow. I know. It's, it's devastating. I, my list is insane of people I've lost through the years, but I'm sure everybody's is. So I go to London and they say, do you want to go on tour? And I said, yeah, sure. Let's go. Let's play. And so we wrote a whole album, all three of us. And uh, me, Nigel, and Paul, and we were doing it in Paul's basement. Paul's wife was managing us, which can be a little sketchy, but it it, <laughs> worked, it worked out. We all got paid. That's what Nigel said to me. He said, well, we're making money. And I said, yeah, that's right. Then <laughs> it's working out. Uh, so anyhow. We went on tour. We went through Spain three times, France, Germany, England. We went on tour with Big Audio Dynamite, and we mm-hmm. hadn't made a record yet. Yeah. And, but we see it was that Clash connection that Absolutely. gave a good audience right away. Yeah. Which, which we appreciated, and I, you know, I totally give it to Paul for that. We were having a great time, and then we got an offer to do the record in Japan. So we fly over to Japan. And we make the album with an engineer who can't speak any English. Are you kidding me? I know. Yeah. And then we get an interpreter. They fly us with an interpreter through the whole thing. Holy shit. He's traveling around with us everywhere. We go to a bar. He's with us. (laughs) Which was really great because I'd never been to Japan and I thought it was amazing. And uh, I like the Japanese and they're, they're just, you know, it's, it's an awesome thing. If you've never been to Japan, it's an incredible place. And and I love the people and anyhow, and they're also super rock and roll people and rockabilly and, you know, everything. They, they love all. We go over there, we cut the album, we all produce it. We have an interpreter talking to the engineer through the whole thing. I'll say, look, I need to get my guitar to sound like this and blah, blah, blah. And then he tells him. And then we, so anyhow, we make the whole record. They, so the record 
company is a Japanese label. They said, you, you guys can have the master tapes. Wow. Then you can, you know, go to America or England and license it to a label. So we owned the record and which was cool. Very rare. At, at that time, that was kind of yeah. rare. Yeah. And uh, it was kind of the beginning of owning your own album and not being screwed by the record company. So we went back to England and then got an offer from IRS records, which was miles Copeland. Yep. Stuart Copeland's brother owned that label. And then we put it out and we went, started going on tour again in uh, America and Canada. And we went back to Japan to play too. So that, and so we had a blast and yeah. We were having a great time and we were all singing on stage. That was really kind of cool. We would all sing together and that had a vibe that was really, really cool. And then I played the shit out of my guitar. I got to really, you know, I got to really do the spaghetti Western whammy bar and, you know, the whole thing that I, I do love doing. Mm-hmm. But we had a great, great time. you use the word vibe because that's what that record is it's got just incredible vibe throughout it's got an amazing sound and uh reach the rock as as a song all the songs i I mean i'm a fan so you know i I might be biased but i I think all the songs are are, are really strong but that song had it been pushed i think and maybe i blame you know record companies for this uh often had that been pushed especially at the time it came out i i mean that song should have been gigantic i agree and I still, you know, play that song live. Yeah, I've heard and it's on it's on your latest album, your your reinvented uh, version of it. Yeah, yeah. An acoustic, I did a twelve string acoustic album. You just released what was it last this year? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it's all it was all recorded analog, yep. even though most of my records are analog anyway. But mm-hmm. you know, now that when digital came in, I kind of you know, I mean, of course, I use digital for certain things, but I wanted to return back to the sound of vinyl. 
and make sure I could get that. And I knew how to do that. So I made, and I wanted to do a solo record that was completely just acoustic guitar. And I wanted to do 12 string to give it, I'm kind of a fan of some of the old blues, like a lead belly, just played 12 string blues. I didn't make really what would be called a fully traditional blues record, but it has that element, I think. Mr. Microphone. Hey, what's that? The cordless microphone that actually puts your voice on the radio. Broadcast over any FM car radio. Hey, good looking. We'll be back to pick you up later. It's practical and great fun for the whole family. And I recorded it all on what would be called a, a ribbon microphone. So that's a microphone that they would use, say, in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. And people would record on often on just one microphone right bands would just lean in for solos if it was acoustic you know and that they would do that in nashville too like at the grand old Opry. there's one big microphone and everybody's standing around it you know acoustic bands uh, yeah and so i wanted to do something that was with that one microphone so i did my research and i found out it was a, a ribbon microphone and i have some friends here in LA that know all the technical, you know, info. So right. anyhow, we did, I did reach the rock. That's on the record uh, forever. It's the name of the, the yeah. recent album. And to me, the record sounds really intimate. It sounds, it almost sounds like if you listen to it, especially with headphones, you kind of feel like you were there. It's got that really, really comfortable, intimate sound. That, that sound of vinyl. Yeah. And that's why some of our favorite records on the earth were done on vinyl and some of the really old stuff, there's a sound to it. And there's, and that, you know, people call it the sound of vinyl, but really it's more, it's much more than that. It's the sound of the tape. It's the, the way the, uh, stu the studios were made with mm -hmm. kinds of boards, all this stuff. So, you know, that's, and I even started my own little record company called sound of vinyl records. And I put it out on my own little label. That's really smart. And Keith and I were just talking about this. Um, well, we talk about it a lot, but the sound of vinyl and the way it makes people feel because music, you know, listening to music is more of an experience or should be more of an experience, an overall experience. You know, you got the visual, you got the artwork when you listen to vinyl, but the sound of it, it's got that experience where you're, you're um, you know, it, 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 you feel music more than you hear it when it's recorded that way, I think. I think so. Well, you know, I think everyone, I mean, even the youngest kids agree. Vinyl sounds better. We tried everything. We tried dats. We did CDs. We've done this. And, you know, we've done Pro Tools. Now, Pro Tools is great. And I'm not against any, uh, any Pro Tools-ism because, you know, a real good trick is to record analog and then download it into Pro Tools for editing. The sound of vinyl records, I mean, every Led Zeppelin record was done, you know, on, on the tape in a yeah. studio, a recording studio that was all analog. That stuff sounds incredible. And you yeah. go down the list to Sgt. Pepper or the Jimi Hendrix experience. That stuff's incredible, and it's always going to be incredible. So it, it helps the music a lot to live on because it's a it's a quality it's an emotional thing there's a warmth and texture from those 
and that that just is not translated. There is. There's a warmth and texture. You know, there's a different attitude, a mentality when you're recording the tape. You know, you don't have a thousand chances, you know, to get it just right, you know, because it can be fixed in editing and you can use Pro Tools and you can change. So when you're going to tape, you know, you got to nail it. it, might make even play better because you have that kind of somewhere in the back of your head that I got to nail this. Is that, do you find that to be true? There is a, there is an element of that. Yeah. Of course you could take a million takes if you had to, but in the old days, they would get a uh, razor blade, mm -hmm. cut the tape to do edits now. And that's a talent unto itself. Cause if you mess up, you could screw up the whole track and yeah, you ruin it. You could ruin it. So there are there are still guys that can do that, but that's the way editing was done back in those days, uh, which worked. It worked, but it's oh, it's, it's dangerous. It was you know, whoa, he's cutting the tape. What are we doing? And guys came through every time. I never had it not work. You know, it's 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 a magical thing of the sound of vinyl. When I've listened to some of those um, early Clapton solo records, and I hear some bum notes, and they left them in there, and there's, and I think that adds to the texture and the warmth. Dude, if you go back and listen to some some of the oldest blues, there are mistakes all over the place, and blues aficionados who really love the blues wouldn't trade those mistakes for a million dollars. Those mistakes often become desirable <laughs> and that's what you're talking about you heard that on an eric clapton record and he you know he probably went well it's a mistake but it's kind of cool let's leave it that's what we would say in the in the day we'd go well that's a mistake but it, it's cool it's kind of it cool. works yeah so let's just okay let's just leave it people are just now used to hearing things with you know, just precision and perfection. And, you know, technically maybe that's good, but there's no, there's no emotion in that. There's no real feel. When you go see a band live, no one's perfect. Everyone, a singer will miss a lyric, a guitar player will miss a note. It just kind of adds to the experience, I think. It's honest. It's real. I mean, I've made a bunch of records, but my favorite thing is to play live. Are you going to be touring this record? Are you going to go out on the road for this one? I have a, a little project that, uh, you know, do you know the band uh, King's X? Sure. Okay. Doug Pinnock, the, Doug, yeah. the, the bass player. I found out they used to do some of my songs off of my first album when they got started. And so Doug and I talked about doing some playing and I also they, he had a drummer that I also had worked with. So recently we went into a, a Doug's garage which somehow sounds great. We don't know how that's possible, but it does. Mm -hmm. We went in there and we decided to, you know, cut some tracks. So we're, we're kind of in the midst of recording some songs that we're, we're writing together. And that's called uh, miles per hour, like, you know, MPH. And that would be Myrick, Pinnock, Hanson. Hanson's the drummer. We're probably going to be releasing that, and it's super electric. I went from my acoustic thing, which, you know, and I'll, I'll do an acoustic gig any old time. And I may do a second record 
like a part two of forever. I'm going, you know, back to all my electric whammy bars and, and blues notes and feedback, tons of feedback. Here we go. That was, I don't even know what to say. That's not acoustic, by the no, way. No, no, that is the That's, opposite. I just wanted you to get a taste of kind of the vibe of. You know, Gary, that's how they get people addicted to drugs. They just give them a little taste. <laughs> that's, that's right. I want you guys, I want everybody to be addicted to that sound. Talking about the other albums with those vibes, like this one has its own and you, you get it within seconds of the, the, you know, of you starting to play that. So is there... Um, is there an album in the works? Is there something coming out? We sure hope so. But right now we're in the early stages. So we're just writing. We're going to record at Doug's house about, oh, three or four songs. You know, we've discussed making a whole record. I don't know when exactly it's going to be out or, you know, we don't really have a record company for it yet. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. But Musically, the the thing about it that we really like is the combination of three the trio is really strong, and it's really we all get along great, and everybody is a nice person. <laughs> I mean, except me, maybe. <laughs> but, but I mean, you know what I mean. We we really want to really get along and be happy and be you know have fun. Have having fun is kind of important, you know. A little bit. So we're, we don't know when it's going to come out. We don't really, know. we just want to do it. I mean, that, that's one thing rock and roll is missing is a good power trio. Introducing Kush, the comfortable nighttime companion. Anatomically contoured to gently support and cushion the weight of a woman's breasts, Kush maintains a more natural shape while resting on your side. Who are some of your favorite guitar players? I have quite a few favorites, but my absolute favorite is Jimi Hendrix. And I got incredibly lucky when I was 16 years old and I saw Jimi Hendrix play. And then I went to the hotel where we heard Jimi and the experience were staying. We'd go into the Hyatt in Dallas, no security throwing us out or anything. <laughs> It wasn't a problem. Nobody seemed to care. So a bunch of kids running in. So we go in. We're all running up and down the halls, wondering 
where they're, what room they're in. We don't, doesn't even make sense what we're doing. And, uh, I, I get, uh, away from the group of kids, just, I think it, by accident, I don't even remember why, you know, how hotels, there's just long walls in a million rooms. I'm just leaning on a wall right across from me. There's a, a hotel door. And that door opened up and Jimi Hendrix stepped out of that room and talked to me for like five, eight minutes by myself. Wow. It was incredible. It was like, it's one of my most fond memories. And let me tell you, Jimi Hendrix was the nicest guy. And he was the most soft-spoken, easygoing. If anybody looked like a god to a 16-year-old kid, he did. Yeah. Uh, So, and then to turn out to be super nice that I could talk to. He had music playing in his room. So the door is open. He's in the hallway talking to me. I hear music coming out of there. And it was the Jeff Beck Truth album, the first, first Jeff Beck solo album. Wow. So it was an incredible moment. Gary, do you remember what you and Jimmy, like, because Jimmy and I are on a first name basis. Do you remember <laughs> what you and Jimmy talked about by chance? All I know is I probably told him how much I loved his music and, you know, just typical fan sure, stuff. Sure. I love your music, man. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I love you, man. Or who knows what I said. <laughs> who knows? All I know is I was just enamored in every yeah. way. And so not disappointed at all. That's awesome. That's very cool. It meant so much to me and I'll never forget it. And God bless beautiful journey. Yeah. Your experience with Hendrix, I'm sure you've had kids come up to you and have, and just be like, man, I love your shit. And that that's gotta be, I'm going to presuppose that you share the same kindness to those that come up to you that Jimi Hendrix showed. Yeah. He taught me, he taught me that lesson. Yeah. And I never forgot it. And I, and I've even said it to young musicians, man, whatever you do, be nice to your friends. That whatever you think, be cool, be nice. Talk to them. It's that simple, really. Everybody seems to go, yeah, right on, you know? And I go, you know, if Hendrix could talk to me, you better talk to your fans, <laughs> you know? The high horse kind of thing doesn't doesn't matter. It doesn't fly, so just, you know, cool. be cool. Yeah. I had a drummer, he always go, be cool, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and I went right on. Yeah. <laughs> it's that's, a good, that's, a good al- that's a good album title. It is a good album title. <laughs>
I played guitar on the last album that Wilson Pickett, the Wicked Pickett, made. It was called American Soul Man. And I was so lucky to be asked because I I thought he was amazing. He was an incredible singer. Absolutely. A yep. real soul singer. Yep. And Hendrix played guitar for him for a while, too. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I got to play decades later, of course, uh, guitar for him on his album. And I always go, wow, Hendrix played for that. I got to play for that guy, too. You, know? <laughs> you have an amazing resume. I think I'm going to start a new game. Everybody knows the uh, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon game. Well, I'm going to start the Six Degrees of Gary Myrick game because <laughs> at, least it, at least in music, you can point and connect the dots. Well, you know what, bro? Stay grateful mm. about everything. Yeah. Everything. It could be so much worse. You're not wrong. You are not wrong at all. Stay grateful. And so. on that note, I am so grateful for your time. It was really fun talking to you guys. Yeah. It was a pleasure. Yeah, it really yeah. was, man. And uh, I'm looking forward to what you're doing with MPH. Well, thank Thanks for caring. For sure. Done. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, right, man. Thank you for the music and thanks for the time. Yeah, man. I All really right. appreciate it. Have a great day. All right, Gary. You, you too. Thanks, Bye. man. All right. Bye-bye. Take it easy, buddy. The songs you heard on this podcast were all taken from the self-titled Havana 3AM album, and they were What About Your Future, Reach the Rock, and Hole in the Sky. The Havana 3AM album, as well as all of Gary Myrick's work, is available to stream wherever you stream your favorite music. Many thanks to Gary Myrick and Haley Winters. If you like us, please be sure to rate us. And if you like us even more, hit that little follow button and follow us. It really helps the crazy algorithms of the internets. Thank you very much. Abandoned Albums was recorded at Thunder Love Studios. Produced and written by Keith R. Higgins and Rob Janicki. Engineered and mixed by Steve Beasley. Edited by A.J. Royce. Original music by Mike Pellegrino. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe and follow us on social media. At Twitter, we are at Abandoned Albums. And on Instagram, we are at Abandoned underscore Albums. Many thanks to Bailey Leaf, Rob Janicki, S.W. Loudon, Michael Janicki, Steve Beasley, Mike Pellegrino, Therina Bella, Peyton Janicki, and of course... Our executive producer. This is Thunderwolf. And now, until we meet again next time, I remain as always obediently yours. Abandoned Albums is a production of Paw Print Media. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom is dead. My mom is right there. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. 
I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who kill their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.